Hello, hello. This is Brian Castle with the Productize Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Back with another episode today, and I'm talking to Marcus Blankenship. He is a coach of managers of technical teams. And uh, what I love about what Marcus has done is how much he's been able to focus in so squarely on what I think is like a niche within a niche. He's a management expert, but he's been really focused on those who find themselves managing technical teams or they've been bumped up from being a technical developer into managing developers. And he's identified the the pain points, the challenges, the transitions that that type of person needs to go through. And he's built a really successful coaching and consulting business out of that. Um, He does a really great job with personal branding and content marketing and positioning. And we cover all of that in this episode. But what I'm always focused on is kind of like the behind the scenes of how he really manages and structures his work week and productizes a coaching business, which is a question that I, you know, how to productize a coaching business. I get that question a lot from folks in my audience. So if you're thinking about those types of things and you're focused on staying solo and really leveraging your time and your expertise and your experience in any sort of coaching environment, or you just want to learn some tips and tricks in terms of managing a team of any kind, but especially a technical team, Marcus is definitely the person to follow and you'll want to hear my conversation with him right now. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Marcus Blankenship. All right. I'm here talking to Marcus Blankenship today. Marcus, how's it going? Good, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining me. And you know, I've been, uh, as we were discussing just earlier, I've been kind of following your stuff from afar. I think we're in uh, similar circles. Um, so your site is marcusblankenship.com. It's your your name.com. <laughs> and um, for those who aren't familiar with you, what are you kind of focused on right now? How do you describe what you do? And what does your typical week look like today? I help technical managers who are in transition level up their skills so that they can be the kind of managers and bosses or leaders that they really want to be. Uh, I say in transition because if you've been doing the work of a technical manager for three to five years or longer, you're probably feeling pretty good about it and pretty competent. But the first couple of years are pretty rough. And as you start to plateau with your skills, you start to look beyond the role you currently have and you start to imagine that you're going to need to level up your skills to get where you want to go. So I kind of focus on those leaders who are or are anticipating um, a transition. Yeah, you know, that's a big reason why I invited you on today to talk to you because, you know, I think you've done really an outstanding job of focusing in on one ideal person. And I like to ask this question, what do you think most people know you for? And the way that I actually know you is you're the guy who helps managers of technical teams and managing technical developers. And that's a really specific thing. And I think it's really great that you've kind of brand, you you have that personal branding going. How did you come about that? Like, when did you make that decision to become known in that? I think of it like a niche within a niche in in a way. Yeah, it was actually really hard. Um, I owned an agency for seven years, a consulting agency with, uh, you know, software people. And we made mobile and web projects, as so many consultants do, um, consulting companies do. And uh, when that closed a couple of years ago because of uh, partnership problems, uh, to be honest, what I did is I hung out my shingle with my network. And I basically said this. I said, if you want to not make the same mistakes I make, you know what? You can just book a time with me. I was part of Brennan Dunn's master class, and he had a rather large forum that was running. And I had met some of the people, and I just put it out there like, hey, don't screw up your business the way I did. 
I'll just let you have an hour of my time for free. I didn't really know coaching was a job. I didn't know it was a thing you could charge money for. So people started booking time, mostly friends. Then the word got around. Other people would come by and they'd say, oh, can I get an hour? And I found that every time we chatted, there would be this wonderful synergy and it felt really good. They went away helped. I went away feeling really helpful, but there was no money involved. And I'm going to get to your point about niching down. But uh, as time went on, uh, I started asking for money. People were willing to pay money. And I realized that I had the credibility in the background to work with agency owners. And I actually have an agency owner mentoring group, but I don't talk about it a whole lot. And I realized that agency owners were, in fact, technical managers who were the accidental manager. Instead of being groomed by their boss for many years, they were people who had grown their company into a point where they now really needed to learn to be managers, and they couldn't afford to just keep working in the code, even though that's what they really loved. So when I made that realization that technical management was the heart of it, I started to talk uh, less about the agency side of things, sales, marketing, profits, client relationships, and I started to migrate my message over to technical managers. It was an experiment to see whether or not I could continue to retain some people who owned the business as well as pick up that core group of people who manage developers, usually novice development managers. And I would say it worked pretty well. Now I talk to people about managing their developers, managing their team, and there's a light icing of manage your boss or manage your client, which kind of goes with both different sides there of the owner or the corporate manager. But most everything I do is focused on the person and their mindset and on how they relate to the people below them. So I've kind of found that to be the universal part of my work. That's yeah, interesting because like management in general, like that alone is just a really broad area to focus on. And there's plenty of books out there on management. And I mean, I deal with management stuff on my team, whether it's developers, writers, assistants, all of it. But yeah, like I think it's really interesting how you've identified the specific challenge and goals that a person would have when they are making that transition and, and where they're at, where they're coming from, where they're going. So early on, when you started to focus in on on that group as your ideal person for your audience and for your products and services, which we'll dig into that stuff in detail, um, how did you initially identify that there was a problem there and that people are actually willing to raise their hand and say, hey, I, I need help with this? When I started with the agency owners, um, again, it was don't make the same mistake I made. But that quickly turned into, of course, what are the problems? And the problems were so universal around people problems having to do with the people on their team. They were bad at giving feedback. They couldn't delegate to save their life. They thought their team should be great, but was always failing them. Um, they didn't speak about their expectations. They didn't talk to their team or have one-on-ones or have clear communication channels. So as I started to notice, like, I think it's like any work you do. When The first time you build a website, you think, oh, this was great. And then the second time and the 12th time and the 92nd time, you see all these patterns. So I started to just see all these patterns of behavior. And I started to realize that at the core, people, oftentimes many of these technical owners were frankly... I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to, they were afraid to be the boss. 
They were so anti-corporate bureaucracy. They hated the M word. Management? No, I'm not a manager. I'm an owner, a founder, as though that had like a little halo over their head that they would never do anything wrong because founders are awesome and managers are jerks. And most of them had worked for a manager who was a jerk, right? And was kind of, they'd started their own thing because they were escaping management. They weren't really excited about being called or thought of as a manager. You've gone through that experience of growing into a a manager of a technical team, and you understand the challenges yourself. But how did you identify early on the any like particular like experiences or hearing from other people or groups that you're in? Well, when I was in Brennan's master class, that gave me exposure to a group of people that I had rubbed shoulders shoulders with his peers. And as I started to help them and talk to them, I started to be realized there was a market there to serve. Um, these people had paid Brennan. They paid for other services. In fact, to be honest, I found that owners are some of the easiest people to extract money from because there's so much on the line. They have everything at risk. A corporate manager has to get approval from their boss. An owner just pulls out their credit card. And with the dream of thinking, wow, my team can be 20% more efficient or I can be less stressed because you know of, of X, Y, or Z, if I learn this from Marcus, I'm totally gonna pay for this. But I did have to go from giving it away for free to asking the first person for money. And that was actually a really hard transition. In fact, to be honest, I faked it. Oh, I didn't fake it. What I did is I tricked myself. I told myself and, and the other person when I wanted to ask for money, I said, I'm going to charge you the equivalent of 16 hours a month of whatever your current billable rate is. And I don't even know the rate. If some agency owner was billing at 25 bucks an hour, I was willing to work with them for 25 times 16 right? That was the monthly subscription, I called it. And I didn't want to worry. I knew I didn't want it to be an hourly rate thing because I wanted to be like an always on behind the scenes help that they could draw on. You know, most people, thankfully, were charging a lot more than $25 an hour. Um, So I got paid better uh, along the way. Why don't you take us through like, what does your current product line or line of services look like today? What's it made up of? Um, We'll start at the top. At the high end is what I call ownership or executive coaching. Starts at about $4,000 a month. The way it's structured is it's a weekly meeting with notes and a recording afterwards. I usually check in with the person a couple of times a week on text or email. And this is one-on-one? This is one-on-one, yep. And so it's very private. Uh, It's for individuals who usually are stepping into or have a team that they need to really improve. And there's a lot on the line for them to improve their management skills. And I've done this with folks who were at uh, Netflix or Box, people taking on a new job as a CTO. Um, just these are people who have money to spend and there's a lot on the line for their failure. So they're, they or their business are willing to invest in it. So that's the one-on-one coaching. And uh, I also have a plan where we meet less frequently. It costs about two grand a month and we meet twice a month. All the same rules apply. You can call me in the middle of the night. You can text me. You can email me as much as you want. We have a shared Slack room. And if you need to talk at any given point, just call my cell phone. I put those out there though, and nobody actually uses them, to be frank. But I wanna make sure they know they're available. It's not that nobody's ever used them, but it's much easier to have a conversation before a problem than clean up the mess afterwards. And so, especially in the first three months of a coaching relationship, I do a lot of checking in with people. 
I even text them little encouragements. I mean, my goal is to help them feel safe enough to talk to me, to know that I'm here for them. And how many of those clients do you take on at at any given time? I only take on five of those clients at a time, five one-on-one folks at a time. They are pretty focused, intense, and I want to bring my A++ game to that work. And is that a a certain time commitment or is there a program that they go through or is it just kind of ongoing as, as long as they need it? You know, it's very open-ended, but we do uh, every quarter sit down and do goal setting. So when they come on, I have them answer about a dozen questions about what do they want to get done that quarter. Kind of new, there's always a, an onboarding call that lasts about 90 minutes where we just get to know each other, their family, their work, their history, why they're working with me. But I have them do some writing, like I said, in this goal sheet. And then we revisit those goals quarterly in a specific quarterly meeting where we track them and we talk about, are we getting there? What needs to change? Things like that. Okay. So going down from the one-on-one and you have the twice a month instead of four times a month, what else do you do? I do a group uh, and I really like these. I started doing these this year with some small groups. So I keep the groups no larger than five. And this is where I started to find that um, and the group prices are about five to $600 a month. So they're quite inexpensive in comparison to the one-on-one. But basically, we meet twice a month for 90 minutes, and this is all done remotely. I don't live in an urban area. I don't travel. It's all done either over Skype or Zoom. But we'll, for the groups, basically, the group format, um, again, we have an onboarding session with each person individually where I get to know them and their goals. Sometimes I recommend the group isn't right for them. But usually, you know, that's where people start is kind of at that mid-tier group level. We meet twice a month. Again, they're recorded. But because they're small, but even though there's other people in the room, the dynamic is different. But what it means is we put them into groups in Slack where each group has its own private channel, people start to form trust relationships amongst each other. And the nice thing is there, it's actually a little less work for me because I don't have to always be the expert. Someone will ask a question and I can sit back and say, well, Room, what do we think about John's problem? And there's a lot of good ideas come from different directions. And so part of my goal there is to not only help them see that they can get answers from me, but they have sort of a mini network of people that they can trust. They see twice a month and people seem to really, really enjoy those. I can see how there's even like an added benefit of being in a group with other people who are going through the same stuff that you are. Exactly. And what I've been doing in the last uh, month or so is bringing in guest experts for one session per month. And that's kind of mixed things up. Uh, I've had people come and talk to the agency group on uh, pricing or positioning, niching down, uh, outbound marketing. And I'm going to have some agile coaches come and talk to the technical lead group and maybe even the agency group uh, owners as well um, talk about process and agile philosophies and kind of getting your team's process to Very cool. So when you're hosting these group calls or even your one-on-one calls, do you have a specific agenda or program or a framework that you use to run these things? I have a big picture framework where we, I know we're going to hit on about a dozen topics over a year, but part of the beauty of these is they need to be 
loose enough that people can bring problems to the session and get answers. So usually in a session, we'll have a topic picked out. Sometimes there's homework. We recently just, just did one with the agency owner group on your costs, and we were doing a cost allocation and project job costing. So I was sending out some written homework in advance, and people came with their project job cost sheets, uh, an example of something real that they were doing, and we critiqued each other. And uh, that was a lot of fun. But that kind of homework actually was inspired by somebody in the group who said, I'd like you to give us assignments. Well, yes, I can do that. That sounds like a great value add that's almost no work for me. So about 50% of the session is structured with a topic or reviewing an assignment. And the other half is really just a round robin of saying, Brian, what's going on in your business today? And then you talk and you know you can bring problems. Um, sometimes people in Slack will say, hey, I want to make sure we hit on this issue I have with a customer. Or maybe if you've posted something with a customer in Slack, we'll go from a Slack discussion to a 15-minute discussion in the mentoring group where you get more feedback on it. So it sounds like it's just your overall line of services and groups here is pretty well-defined and uh, sounds like a really good structure. So has it evolved into this? Like, what did it look like early on when you transitioned into this coaching business and how has it changed over time? Yeah. Originally I thought, well, you know, I could probably take 20 people on at once. I could, I bet I could work with 20 agency owners and think about, you know, how good the money there would be. And I was like, I was working with a lot of people and I noticed that man, I was exhausted every day. That was one thing. And then second, after you've done four one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions in a day, the last person's not getting the best part of you. I do one-on-one -on -one calls through the productized program and just like, they're usually like one hour. It just wipes out my whole afternoon of like focus and energy. Exactly. So I had to learn that even though it was one hour of time, it was like three hours of energy. And not only could I not put them back to back, but I couldn't even do more than maybe two a day. So I scaled that back. And I also realized that um, there's going to be a certain amount of churn. And, you know, to be honest, I think I was I was running about 20 people through at a time. And then because I didn't really have my marketing and my positioning and a funnel, and I wasn't doing much writing to my list, frankly, when those people churned out, there was nobody behind them to replace them. So I went through a dry period middle of last year, and I had to kind of ask myself, okay, well, have you exhausted the market? No, but are you the best fit for everybody, including massive creative agency owners and tiny little freelancers? No. So what are you good at? Oh, I'm really good for people who have software engineering development teams. That's where I know the most and that's what I love. So I started to tighten down my niche and I started to write more to those people. And that kind of increased the number of leads, which then increased the number of sales. Let's get back to that for a moment, finding that focus, really niching down and finding that ideal person for your services. Because so many people, and I've had this conversation, you know, with multiple people so many times, there's this fear of focusing in too tightly. What if I'm, so you do management consulting, you could perfectly well, you could talk to managers who are managing writers or assistants or designers, but you've chosen to focus on technical teams, developers. So Talk to me about that fear of focusing in too squarely on one group, the potential of turning away other people. Like, How have you overcome that fear and what's been the impact on your business? 
I think Philip Morgan has really helped me with that. If people are aware, I don't know if you've talked about him in the past, but, you know, not only just uh, having read his book and him and I are friends and he's given me some tips along the way, but even his website, like the services page on on his website is so brave. Before he tells you what he offers, he says, hey, I'm going to tell you if you have this problem, go away, go over to this guy. If you have that problem, like his first half of his sales page is all getting you off of his page. And I think that takes guts. And so I'm going to totally acknowledge there's a fear there. It hits especially hard when you're hungry, right? (laughs) When you need the money, you're like, well, this is stupid. Wouldn't it be better to catch something rather than nothing? But at the end of the day, what I found is my writing practice really forces me to focus. And I'm one of these weird people who write every day to my list. I know that's probably not sexy and I get a lot of flack about it. People leave the list and the primary reason they leave is too many emails. <laughs> that's interesting you bring that. I, I have that here as, as one of my questions. We'll get into how you're marketing. And I did subscribe to your list and I noticed you know, when I searched for your name in my inbox, it's there almost every day in the month. And I mean, I can definitely relate to that, you know, writing blog posts when you know exactly who you're writing for, it just makes for such a better, well-targeted piece of content. Yeah. And what I found when I was writing and I would ask people questions, the more specific I could be. If I was getting in your head and you're an agency owner sitting here listening or a coach and you're frustrated with your VA or your designer or your programming team, and I can say, you know, what's the thing that causes you not to trust that person? Or who is it that you know needs to go on your team, but you just haven't been brave enough to kind of pull the trigger? Write me back and tell me. Like I would just start watching the responses and seeing where engagement was coming in because I actually asked you know, it's not some big million dollar system. It's literally hit reply and just respond to this one question. So the more often that happens, the more dialogues I enter into. And the more I started finding out that those people were managers of a certain mindset or people who wanted to be managers of a certain mindset. I love it. And so I guess tying it back into something that you mentioned earlier, you know, churn, This is something that I've heard a lot, whether it's coaching businesses or membership information products, churn is higher than it would be typically in, say, a software product or something else. So does finding that focus and finding the most ideal audience for your free content and then those people come into your service, does that kind of reduce the likelihood of them churning out because they're such a good fit to begin with? I think so. The average person stays with my services nine months. So, you know, if you figure you're spending between 2000 or maybe even 5000 and $500 a month, that's a nice lifetime value. And I've had people who churned out after three months and I've had people stay on two and a half years, frankly. But I think, yeah, the the more that what you're talking about suits them and fits them, the better. But I think there's another aspect, especially in coaching, because It is so often about the connection you make with somebody. I've had interview calls, pre-calls before I signed a contract with somebody, gotten off the phone and thought, I would not want to talk to that person every week. I mean, and I don't think they'd want to talk to me. And I'll just be very upfront and say, uh, and I know five or six other technical coaches, CTO coaches, startup coaches, and so I'll refer them over to somebody else. So part of, I think, reducing churn is being picky and 
willing to listen beyond just your pocketbook. You know, you've got to, I guess, listen, play it from the heart. If you know you can't stand talking to somebody for an hour and for whatever reason, how much are you really going to invest in helping them? And how much are probably are they going to feel connected to you? I'm sure every student is different, although they come from the same background. You have focused and niched down. But what do you do when a student is kind of not making the same level of progress that everybody else in the group is doing or, or all of your other one-on-one clients are, are doing, or they're just struggling with the things that you've been talking about. How do you deal with that? I think the biggest struggle I see is people who don't want to take advice, frankly. They want to pay you as though they bought a book and they slipped it under their pillow. And if they just sleep on it at night, they'll know all about C++ algorithms or, or you know, uh, WordPress for dummies or whatever book they put under their pillow. They think it's an instant fix. Part of it is I now tell people, this takes a while and it's work, but it's your work. I can't do the work for you. So I try and set that expectation right up front that it's not going to be easy. And just because you pay me doesn't mean you're going to get better at this. You've got to apply the effort. But certainly there are people who I suggest to them, you know, Jim, it's been six months and I know you show up for every session, but every time we derail our original goals and you want to talk about X, Y, or Z, I'm not an expert in your marriage relationships. I'm not an expert in, you know, why it is you can't get up and go to the gym. Maybe you should look for somebody who is an expert in that area because we're working outside of my expertise at this point. Can you talk to me a bit more about setting those goals? Is there a process that you follow for that? And do all of your students kind of have the same or common goals? And how do you approach that piece? They all fill out the same uh, survey. Uh, It's not really a survey. It's like an onboarding sheet. And it says things like, um, you know, how many hours you work a week. Tell me a little bit about your role. How long have you been in it? Tell me about your team. Uh, Then there's some key questions. Who would you fire if you could? And who would you clone if you could? Kind of starting to get them in the mindset of identifying who their best and worst players are. And then I asked them to put down three problems they'd like to solve in the next 12 months. And these are kind of the beginnings of the goals. And then what's the problem? What have they tried to do to solve the problem? And what would it look like? How would life be different if they could solve that problem? And I have everybody go through that and they definitely fall into themes. Um, time is a much bigger problem than I originally thought. I actually, uh, I've gotten to know pretty well a gal named Elizabeth Grace Saunders who writes books on time management and is actually a time management coach. And so I will send people over to do sessions with her. She's got two or three books out and she writes for HBR and a, a few other good publications. So she's very well respected and well known in sort of the time management community. So when somebody's struggling with time, which is a very common thing, Either I'll I'll toss over some questions to her or maybe set up like a, a specialist session. But definitely time. And then I guess the other one is just this idea of I really would rather be programming. Like I'd so much rather be coding, Brian. Why do I have to do this? I miss coding. Um, that's such a huge theme. And I can't seem to get away from it, partially because I, I think I'm the only one who's good at it on the team or I'm the best. We'll use that phrase. But then the other half of it is, frankly, if I leave it, what's that make me? Like what identity crisis am I going to have to face if I'm not a coder? Does that mean I'm a manager? Because I don't like managers, right? And what's that mean about myself? So themes about self-identity, how I use my time, 
how I deal with conflict, that's a massive problem amongst tech leaders. So I do see that there's a lot of common themes. There's also always a few one-offs here and there, but frankly, conflict, time management, and what value do I bring as a manager? Those are usually the big ones. So are you kind of documenting these goals and updates on them from month to month so that they can kind of see, okay, this is the progress that we've made in six months or nine months. And we, we review them quarterly. And so that's where they actually refill out the goal sheet, reflect back on the past months, take a look at the original document, do some more writing on where they think they've come. Um, at the end of the day, I'm not a trained counselor or therapist, although I actually have gone back to school for psychology because I'm recognizing that what I'm trying to move beyond is just the idea of like coaching is a friend who will always be there to, you know what, coaching is a real practice that deserves an educational background and the skills to go with it. And so I've gone back to Penn State, frankly, to get an industrial psychology degree uh, because it is something I'm interested in. And I think I'm going to be better as a coach when I have that background. Interesting. I'm always interested in the mechanics and the operations and how you streamline things. And actually, the question that I get a lot from my audience who are doing productized services or they're interested in productized services, many of them are coaches or they have some form of coaching or consulting in their business. The question that I get is, how do I productize my coaching business? How do I streamline it, scale it? Um, Have you thought about those kinds of questions? Like, how does it go beyond you? How do you generate more passive income from this sort of thing? Or are you not interested in that? And any thoughts on that? One thing I tried this year, and I think the experiment's still in process, is I have a Slack group and people who pay me for coaching services are in there. But I decided to see if it was a product that would stand on its own and uh, started charging a little bit of money for it. I think it was 100 bucks a month and got some takers and things were going pretty good. And I had a really interesting thing happen. I actually offered three months for free for anybody who took a little quiz on my site. I got about 50 people who came on and they wanted the three-month trial. And at the end of those that three months, not a single one of them chose to stay. That was kind of tough to realize. But when I reached out to each one of them and I said, great, what could I have done? You know, I understand. What could I have done to make it better? They said, boy, we just don't have time to be in there and constantly interacting. And that's what it would take for us to get value out of it. Okay, well, I set up a discourse community, which is a much more long-lived, asynchronous kind of place where people can interact. And now I'm actually going through a process there where those people come on and and I've given away free three-month trials to discourse. For those who aren't familiar with discourse, it's more like a traditional forum where you post, whereas Slack is like a live chat. That's right. So uh, the idea is just continuing to play with what can I do that would bring in a revenue stream, say you charged 50 to $100 a month for access to a closed forum, where you could ask questions, but you can also search back through the archives and look up answers and give comments. The struggle is, what I didn't realize, of course, because it's an experiment, running a community is a whole different kind of business, and it takes a whole different kind of cadence effort, focus. So now I'm finding I'm in there almost every day, kind of churning, you know, stirring the pot, if it would be getting people thinking about it, writing, stuff like that. And I'm not sure it'll work out, to be honest. I'm not sure I'll continue doing it because I don't know if it's going to be worth the return on that investment. Have you gone into info products at all? I mean, I know that you do a lot of free content and you've got eBooks and blog posts and videos and stuff, but 
Any like paid info products? I do. I do have a, a paid book. It's nine ninety five, an ebook, um, and I've sold a few hundred copies of that. That's kind of fun, as well as it makes me now quote unquote, an author, because I've released a book. So you get that little bump in credibility. I do also live training courses for O'Reilly, the O'Reilly, a couple of different conferences. I'm doing one uh, next month for them in San Jose. And also the other thing I do is I do remote workshops for myself. And I forgot to mention that, I apologize, is I actually do four to six week long virtual management training workshops where, again, we meet over Zoom or Skype once a week. There's some homework. I do some teaching with slides. You get a recording of it. Uh, There's usually a time where you can interact with me one-on-one. Everybody, I think, gets one or two one-on-one sessions. And these cost about $2,500 to go through a a six-week workshop. So I have tried that, and that's actually been quite successful, especially when the price point is sub $1,000. I'll get you know 15 to 25 people signing up. And so if I'm understanding correctly, just hearing everything that you've described, your typical week is, looks like a, a few one-on-one sessions, hosting and kind of moderating your group sessions, getting into your membership Slack and forum, and then producing your free content and your daily content to your list. Is that basically what your typical week looks like work-wise? Yeah, uh, at least for this business. I've got a couple other businesses I run. And uh, in some ways, um, I suppose if I didn't, this business would get a lot more attention. I do pretty much all my coaching activities in about five to six hours a week. So it takes me about an hour to 90 minutes per day to do between the forum and hosting those groups or doing a one-on-one. I've gotten to the point now where I don't really schedule more than one coaching activity per day because I'm happy with the revenue that's coming in and I'm happy with the group sizes and I've got other things I want to do as well. So what are the other things that you're doing? I actually still run an agency. It's kind of a fully virtual remote agency and I have a a team. So when mine broke up about a year ago, I kind of got some key members of the band back together, not the partners. I'm the sole owner of it. And uh, I do technical projects, uh, usually white labeled for other large agencies that don't have that particular specialization, a lot of mobile work. Got it. So kind of practicing what you preach a little bit there. Exactly. Got to stay sharp, right? Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, still on, on like the coaching side of things, like, is it just you or do you have a team at all to help streamline things or any tools or systems that you use to make things more efficient there? Uh, it's just me as far as doing it. I do have a virtual assistant who sometimes will book calls, but honestly, Calendly is so good. And I don't know if your audience is familiar with that, but... Yeah, being able to say, choose a time, and then I've got special links for uh, different coaching types so that because they're allocated for different parts of the day, you know, the 90-minute coaching or an onboarding call, things like that. And then I, I do use a subscription to Zoom because I find it to be really, really good, high-quality video and audio, records really nice and everything. Yeah, Zoom is great. I've used that quite a bit. All right. So as we kind of get near the end of this call here, I just want to talk a bit more about marketing because you do a great job with your personal content. As I said, I've subscribed to your list. I've actually gone in and out of it. And recently, I I think I signed up about a month ago. I re-signed up about a month ago. And I do this with a lot of people where I for the sole reason of spying on your list sequences and how you talk to your list. So, and that's one thing that I noticed is that you are coming back to the inbox almost on a daily basis, which, you know, seems like a lot for a lot of people. I mean, I totally get it, but 
Can you talk to us a little bit about like what happens in the first, say, 30 days of somebody joining your email list? And actually, how do you attract email subscribers in the first place? Well, one is being on shows like this. So I try and stay on podcasts or speak at remote conferences or live conferences or things like that. Um, the other one is obviously writing. Uh, about two weeks after any given email goes out, I post it on Medium and on my blog and my VA tweets it. And so we kind of keep pushing that content because it's pretty evergreen. We strip out the calls to action like, oh, this Friday, the workshop price is going to go up, right? And it's it just becomes kind of the nugget of content there. In the first first 30 days, though, it's the experience is crafted such that every week somebody gets a long form piece of content. So it's a I've got about 60 items in a drip campaign. So I've got about 60 weeks worth of content that's maybe 1500 to 2000 words. And then every day, my goal is to send them about 200 words in an email. And so there's kind of a combination of once a week you get something substantive and every day you get a little tickler that people are, you know, the, the idea is twofold. One, I want to stay in front of you. Like you said, your inbox is filled with my stuff. And two, I have found, shockingly enough, that if you write every day and you don't make it too long, they don't all have to be Hemingway is what I say. Like if Mondays isn't sparklingly good, people who are with you are around and they're like, okay, I'll wait for Tuesdays. So I kind of figure if you could hit the 75% being pretty good content ratio, they'll forgive you the other 25% of the stuff that kind of falls flat. You know, I I do kind of similar things and I use Drip as well, where I have a lot of evergreen content built into the list with automated campaigns. And then I also send some live content. How do you do that? So you you mentioned that you have 60 weeks worth of of the weekly long form articles. And those are articles that, that you've written previously. That's evergreen automated. And the daily stuff, is that live or is that looping as well? No, it's live, working without a net. So if you come on the list tomorrow, you won't get today's. Now, in a couple of weeks, you could find it on my site or on Medium. So I do try and encourage, and I'm really evaluating this. Like, should I drive people to Medium, which is, I really love the platform and I think the community is great. Or for SEO purposes, should I put it on my site or both? Haven't quite figured it out. I'm sure one of your SEO coaches probably could give me some good advice there. But I do like to work without a net because I just don't want to write too far in advance. What's interesting to me today is today, to be honest. It's the stuff that as people wrote me back yesterday, I want to reply to. I want to say, oh, quick question from the audience. This is what I got in my email and I'm going to answer it in front of everybody today. Or I'm going to make a YouTube video about it today and I'll just send out a link for that. Yeah. I've been doing this thing called Friday Notes and that's where I do my live notes about what I worked on this week, something I learned this week, something from my personal life or this season or whatever's happening. But then, yeah, I have about three months worth of my best of content that I drip out to new subscribers. Nice. I like that Friday notes idea. Uh, I know somebody, I think it's James Grieg does a Monday mailer. Paul Jarvis does his dispatch on Sundays, I think. So I have just found there's absolutely no substitution for regularity consistency. I can tell you, I've got to keep it small. 200 words is about as much as people will tolerate. 100 words is even better. So the interesting thing is it forces me to really focus on like, what's my point? What do I want them to think and how do I want them to reply? And then the weekly piece can be longer and more involved. 
So YouTube, that's another one that I noticed you're very active on. It's something that I'm actually trying to get up and running myself. I've dabbled in different video stuff over the years, but I'm trying to get into, I don't like this term, but like, you know, vlogging (laughs) and do this like short, brief answering an audience question in videos. And you seem to do a pretty good job of that. So I was checking out your YouTube channel this morning. I noticed you do quite a few videos from your car while you're driving. You do them from the office. Tell me a bit about that. How does that work for you? And what are some things you've learned from it? I think it kind of goes back to emailing. Um, The shorter you can make it, the better, the more to the point. And then frankly, I had to really get over the idea that it wasn't going to be stellar, Ramit Sethi style quality content. And, And that's okay. Well, the content is quality, but the production doesn't have to be. Okay, there you go. A low production value doesn't mean you don't have high quality content. Something to say that people need to hear. And I started prioritizing that. If people need to hear that, you should enter into the hard conversation today that you've been avoiding. It really doesn't matter if it's got a nice bumper and music and a, an animation and I'm standing well lit or if I'm walking down in my car, you know, or I'm sorry, if I'm driving in my car and it just, it's just like, you need to do this today. The message is what I think is the most valuable thing. So as I've started to prioritize that the message matters more than the production quality, and, and I do want to get better with the production quality, but I can't be afraid of putting out there something that people might say, oh, it's too shaky to look at. Okay. If it was too shaky, it didn't grab you, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. And so how does it work with YouTube? Are you only posting to your YouTube channel or are you also embedding it in your blog and, or sending it to your list? How do you kind of integrate that? I'm a simpleton. I just put it on the YouTube channel. I don't have many subscribers, a couple hundred, and that grows slowly over time. My virtual assistant is, she again is continuing to push, and this has really helped. I think I've been growing quite a bit on the social followers uh, in the last uh, month. And so just continuing to promote it there. But You know, I don't know what the future is going to bring. I have just decided, though, that I don't have to be perfect. I just have to get out there and produce content. And in a lot of ways, I want to see what people respond to, because that's how I'll know what I should do more of. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So I guess one of my last questions here is just, so you're doing a lot of free content, videos, writing, sending, you know, short stuff to your email list, but people also pay you for your advice and for your coaching and community stuff. So the question that I hear a lot or the fear again of, you know, are you giving away too much for free advice or information that clients might otherwise pay you for? How do you think about that distinction? You know, right now at at the point I'm at, I give it all away. And if I had a great, I wouldn't hold back something, uh, Brian, and say, well, Brian, I'm just going to tell this to you and your listeners or to to you in a one-on-one session that I probably haven't already talked about. But at the end of the day, I don't find people take written advice that often. They do take advice from people they trust and oftentimes from people they pay for. So the more you pay for that advice, the more likely they are, at least this is my experience, the more likely they are to actually action on it and then change their lives. I think free advice is thought of as generally helpful, but not super valuable because the internet is so full of advice these days, right? Yeah, that's great. And you know, I kind of think of it the same way. And as high quality and insightful as the free content is, I think certainly folks are willing to pay for more personalized advice. Like, how does it actually apply to me? Can I ask you follow-up questions and really dig in? And, and that's where the, the value of the coaching comes in. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think the value of the coaching always comes back. Yes, the advice is important, but so many people tell me, knowing I'm not alone, knowing I'm not going through it by myself, knowing that I can reach out to you when something comes up unexpectedly with my boss or with a team member, that is invaluable to me. Very cool. So what's next for you? So we're recording this in uh, May of 2017. Obviously, your site is marcusblankenship.com and folks can go there to get on your email list, you know, learn from you and check out your, your services. But what are you kind of focused on, you know, the rest of this year and going forward? Uh, I think I want to do a non-self-published book. I would call it a real book, not just a book of blog articles. And so I'm kind of sketching that out. And then maybe also a, a video course. Um, I've got a couple of other workshops coming up. Uh, I think one's called uh, Escaping Tyranny, How to Work with Difficult Bosses or Transform a Bad Boss into a Good One. Again, this comes directly from my audience who says, I get treated really poorly on a regular basis. Huh. So it's like the other side of the coin. It's not being a manager, but working with a, a manager. Well, in a lot of middle managers, you know, you take that first step up from being a programmer doesn't mean you've got a good boss. Yeah, you might be thinking, how do I need to manage my team? But if you're constantly having to deal with this boss who's tyrannical or abusive, that's a problem that people bring to me all the time. So I think it's continuing to listen to my audience and try and create products that help. That's great. So where can folks connect with you? Join my list, marcusblankenship.com. The homepage has a, a big old form. You can put stuff in and see what I do every day. Uh, if you heard me on the show, please drop me a line and just, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your listeners. Uh, if you're a listener to this, and especially if you are finding the transition into management to be a little bit more challenging than you thought, uh, you know, that's maybe where I can help. And to my listeners here, I mean, I've been following your stuff for a while now and you know, like we talked about, you do tend to focus on managing developers and technical teams, but I found value in a lot of your advice and doesn't necessarily have to apply to managing developers specifically. I've certainly, you know, had some actionable takeaways myself, really managing anyone and getting more organized there. So yeah, Marcus, thanks so much for taking the time and a lot of actionable, insightful stuff here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right. Was that good? Let me know what you thought of this one. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you recently. You're not getting my emails? Okay, then head over to my site, castjam.com. You can join my newsletter there. You'll get my best stuff about entrepreneurship, productizing, and more. Also, a five-star review in iTunes is always appreciated. That'll help others like us come find these episodes. All right, until next time, we get back to working on the business. Later. Later.